From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. changed my political calculus when I had to start voting with my neighbor in mind and not just myself and my pocketbook, right? So I think there is that sense that when you are centering, as you said, the vulnerable, wow, we are opening ourselves up to maybe moving closer to God's kind of peace that we see before us in the Advent narratives. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kelly Nikondeha. She's a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. She combines biblical texts and various cultural contexts to discover insights for embodied justice, community engagement, and living faith. She's the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. And she is known for highlighting Palestinian voices and rights. She travels between the southwestern United States and Burundi in East Africa. Today we're talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Kelly Nikandeha, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to you because this book knocked my socks off. I occasionally get a chance to teach courses in in New Testament. I am always looking for resources to help my students think about these texts in a new way because, and you probably know this well, we can get blinders sometimes because we have become so used to hearing these stories that we think that we know them and we own them. And so it is a wonderful thing to have a book that encourages me to look at these texts in a new way. And just to describe what you're doing for your readers, is you are looking back at the birth narratives of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, but you're also looking at, if you will, the geography of the land around Jerusalem, what we term the Holy Land, both the Israeli portions and the Israeli-occupied and Palestinian portions, and you're rereading these texts through all of these different levels. And so this is really where I want to begin our conversation, is somewhere along the way, you and your editors made some decisions about how this book was going to be structured. And I just want to say, I think the structure is so effective, but talk me through that process. How did you come to this particular way of weaving together these texts and these geographies? I love that you pay attention to the structure. (laughs) I have been traveling in and out of the region. I went three years in a row after many years, almost 30 years of reading copiously and having friendships with Israelis and Palestinians, but finally got to start traveling to the region myself, which allowed me to see what some call the fifth gospel, which is the land itself. And that added a texture 
that has changed the way that I interact with the text itself. But I have long been a lover of Advent, but I have also come to feel a heaviness or a darkness when I enter into the Advent space. And so for the last several years, I have felt that I have been at odds with the church, which is getting ready for light and anticipation and stars. And I would feel this heaviness and also a deeper awareness of all these injustices. And I felt as if I was an Advent anomaly. And so how do I reorient myself? And so I leaned in, I think maybe part of this exploration actually started when I was in Jerusalem. But the last time I went to a tattoo shop in the old city that I love and ended up getting a tattoo, a Coptic stamp of the Annunciation. It just drew my attention and I knew instantly when I saw it that there was something there for me. So that was the tattoo that I got for my pilgrimage. But that really, I think, cracked open something in me to lean more deeply into the Advent texts. Now, these are traditionally called the birth narratives. I call them the Advent texts on purpose because I believe that around the birth, both leading into the birth stories and on the other side of the birth, we have really important information about the context, the economy, the politics, the violence. We see on the other side some some atrocities and things that happen after the birth. And so for me, these are Advent texts. It's a bigger scope. I came back from Palestine and started reading these texts with the hope that maybe I could realign, to take that part of me that felt out of sync and let the text bring me back. And as often happens, the Spirit surprised me with some, some different understandings that maybe seeing the darkness before the Advent texts was deeply congruent uh, with, with what was happening in the landscape before the first Advent um, and what continues to happen now. There's so much in that answer that I want to dig into, but before we do that, let me take a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kelly Nikondeha. She's a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. Today we're talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Now, on my way to digging into the answer that you just gave us about darkness and light and the way in which the fifth gospel of the land of Palestine helped you to reimagine your readings of these texts, I want to come back to that tattoo, because this was actually a point that really grabbed me in your book, The First Advent in Palestine. And I don't know if this was the same tattoo parlor that you got the tattoo that you just mentioned, but you mentioned the Razouk family, and I believe a, a tattooist named Wasi. And you mentioned that one of the things that they did was they were part of a historical practice of tattooing a little cross on the wrist of the Coptic Christians that live there in in Palestine. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that practice, because I want to dig in there. Sure. Actually, the Razouk family, their roots are in Egypt, being Copts, Coptic. So this tradition actually started it with the Coptic church in Egypt that little cross that was tattooed usually by a priest. So the, most likely there was a priest somewhere in the Razouk history, but you would have that little cross to gain entrance into a place of worship because there was a lot of persecution happening at the time in Egypt. But the Razouk family traveled as pilgrims in around 1300 to Jerusalem, and they stayed. And they brought with them 146 wooden 
stamps. And those stamps are what are the stencils for these tattoos. And so some of these stamps are 500 years old, 450 years old, 300 years old. It's quite something to have something that ancient become part of your own story and your own body. But they do this now for pilgrims to certify a pilgrimage. And so Wazim Razouk is the 27th generation, and he has two sons, Anton and Nazir, who are the 28th generation, who are also now joining him and tattooing as well. So there's something very significant every time I've gone. I go to the shop and get my certificate, as it were, and get to be part of that story of that family that that deeply identifies with Jerusalem now, but also the history of pilgrims who have all these years since 1300 been getting their tattoos in the shadow of the Holy Sepulchre. And this is really what struck me about that particular portion of your book, The First Advent in Palestine, because I have not been to the Holy Land, but everyone I know from seminary and from other circumstances that has gone there, for Christians, it's like Disneyland. And they're, they're like the honored guests oftentimes, because they come with a lot of money and they are willing to soak up all the stories and buy all the tchotchkes. And what was fascinating to me about this little cross tattooed on the wrist is it speaks to a different experience of Christians in the Holy Land. And you said it, a history of persecution and a, a history of kind of not necessarily belonging to this place and not being able to say that they have ownership over it. And that was one thing that really struck me about your book was you were constantly decentering who it is that actually, and I'm scare quoting here, owns this land, who has the right of possession. And you, you introduced the idea of the Jewish claim to right of possession and the Christian claim to right of possession. But there's also among the Abrahamic faiths, an Islamic claim to the right of, of possession. And so I want to ask you now, digging, using the tattoo as a sort of way in, how are we to think about putting feet on the ground there? And what does it mean for someone from the Christian tradition to stand in this land? What can they and what shouldn't they say when, they're, when they begin their pilgrimage there? For me, it was really important to enter into the space where I was going to be able to connect with both the Jewish story and the Palestinian story. Of course, that's very simplified because not only do we have these two peoples, there are Bedouins and immigrants of all sorts that also inhabit this land and have history there. There are the three Abrahamic faiths. So there's lots of different ways you can parse. But if I'm going to, for the ease of conversation, let's say, It was very important to me to go where I would be able to connect with multiple people who represent multiple stories. So I was invited to go to the Holy Land several times, but would always say no because I could tell I was going to be getting a single narrative. So I waited until I was invited to go with a group of women who were looking for the peacemakers. And so when I went, I was with a group of women who met with Messianic Jewish women. There's a very small group of them doing advocacy work, but we met with them. We met with Palestinian women. We were in a mosque and listened to some women from from the Islamic tradition. We met with Jewish women and got to see all the different ways that they were trying to advocate for peace and model it for their own communities. And that was really important to me, to not fall into the danger of a single story where you only hear, I think oftentimes you'll only hear the narrative from maybe the perspective of the Jewish or Israeli traditions. 
And you're missing something because, of course, there are other peoples in this land that have been custodians. So many of our Palestinian friends have been custodians of these sites and have a shared history in this land. And so it was really important to me to make sure I went when I could hear that. And I would recommend that to anybody who goes to not just go to Jerusalem and up to Nazareth, but to cross the checkpoint and go down into Bethlehem for more than four hours, where you just see the Church of the Nativity and get some chotskis in the local, the, the shops that are right around on Star Street, right around the, the manger square, but to actually spend time and get to know the people there because their story is equally important to getting a feel for this, this place. It's also important, I think, to recognize that with all the challenges in the region, we're dealing with two people groups who have deep trauma, both of them legitimate. The trauma of the Holocaust is real and it is still felt today by our Jewish brothers and sisters and the trauma of the Nakba, or when our Palestinian friends were many of them evicted from the land and became refugees in 1948. Both of those are very real, very legitimate pain that those communities carry. And I think it's important to go to that space, recognizing we're not competing, you know, not to fall into the competition between who has the greater grievance, but to recognize that the trauma hits the families in both sides of this and to be sensitive to that. I think that's part of the challenge of peacemaking in the region. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kelly Nikondeha. She is a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. She combines biblical texts and various cultural contexts to discover insights for embodied justice, community engagement, and living faith. She's the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and Adopted, the Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. She's known for highlighting Palestinian voices and rights, and she travels between the Southwest U.S. and Burundi in East Africa. Today we're talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Kelly Nakandeha. She's a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. She's the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Today we're talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Before we went to break, you introduced a concept that I want to return to, the concept of trauma. And you mentioned that when we actually go to the geographic Holy Land, to Israel and Palestine and all of that space, we are in, entering into a space of trauma. 
that the Jewish peoples have been traumatized by the Holocaust, the Palestinian people have been traumatized by the Nakba. But this was what I thought was so masterful about the first advent in Palestine, because you don't just you don't just reference that contemporary trauma, but you read us back into the trauma that is there in the text of the New Testament and also the intertestamental texts like the book of Maccabees. And so maybe let's go there and say, when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about something that was present throughout the history of the construction of this text. You have a line, actually, that I think will sum it up beautifully for the listeners, and that is that the empires come and go. But as soon as one empire is fading, another empire is coming on the horizon to take its place. And that has always led to oppression for the vulnerable in these lands. So let's stay with this idea of trauma. But now take us back to some of these earlier texts and help us understand how a trauma-informed reading of Luke and Matthew and Maccabees can help us to understand more deeply what's going on here. Well, this was one of the surprises for me when I returned to these texts, was the presence of trauma. Trauma, when you read and think about what was actually happening, but also generational trauma, because of course, for the Jewish people, the suffering, when you read back in Isaiah and you hear about what was happening with Babylon, and then we know that there's exile, and then we know that there are generations of trauma. And now, as we are doing more trauma-informed theological work, we know that that does something to us as a community, right? Our communities experience trauma and that stays with us. It comes out in our institutions and in our traditions, but also just into our families and into our very selves. And so I read these texts and started to see what I had never seen before. And I, I was surprised that I hadn't seen it before because once you see it, you're like, oh, of course this was there. But in the lead up to the Advent texts, we have the story of the Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, intertestamental period. Another surprise for me, I grew up with a Bible that went straight from Malachi into, into Matthew, and you would never know <laughs> that there was the stuff that happened in between. But thank God for our Catholic brothers and sisters who have kept the Apocrypha in their actual text. And it, that's how I stumbled upon and remembered, oh, there were things that happened that predate the Advent stories, that in a sense, these stories were a response to a landscape that was just hemorrhaging with violence and economic woe and loss and lament. And we often call these, I grew up hearing that these were the silent years, the 400 years between the last word in Malachi and when Gabriel would come and speak again in the Gospels, that we had these 400 years of silence. And of course, only God was silent <laughs> because the landscape was loud with lament and loss. And I think that's what, what I read back into the Maccabees and what was happening when the Seleucid Empire came in and came, they, they went right into the temple and snuffed out the eternal flame, which was the visible sign of God's presence with the Jewish people and burned out the city. And I mean, just all the atrocities, you realize this was the predicate. This is part of what God's arrival was responding to. And, and as I said, this was part of the, for me, the recognition that my own sense of darkness and heaviness with injustice as I entered Advent 
was almost as if I was entering into that Maccabean space and feeling in sync with that sense of loss and sadness and suffering. And boy, do we need God to arrive. And we need a liberation that is tangible, not just spiritual, but but we need to be released from debt. We need to be released from these marauding soldiers. We It was a tangible liberation. At least that's how I understand it. So that set me up for seeing the stories in Luke and Matthew. Of course, Luke talks a lot about the economic challenge, which I think, again, we often miss when Luke talks about the Joseph and Mary having to go and register for a census. This is mentioned several times, register for the census, register for the census. If you don't recognize what that is, and I didn't, you just think they're going to do some, I don't know, they're just going down like you go to the DMV and sign up to let them know you moved and you need a new car. No, this was, you know, the only time the empire wanted a census was when they were getting ready to enforce a tax hike. So this was never good news for people. If there was going to be a census, you knew that all the functionaries of the empire were counting because they were getting ready to see how much more can we extract from the people in terms of taxes and tribute. So I'm traveling because the empire says I have to travel. And I know that at the end of this journey, I'm going to end up paying more. And I'm already in Joseph and Mary and their neighbors would have already been at an economic loss. At this time in the region, there was indebtedness. The tax burden was already pretty significant under the Seleucid Empire historically. They were experiencing land loss and dispossession. So it was already bad and things were just about to get worse. And Luke wants us to see that as part of the Advent story. And of course, Matthew wants us to see that even when Jesus was born, there were going to be atrocities in the aftermath, violence at the hand of tyrants. So to me, you just can't, now I can't read the text and not see that there was present tense trauma on top of the generational trauma that these families would have already had. And there's a way that you sum this up when you're looking back at these accounts of Matthew and Luke, and I really like the way that you phrased it. it, When we look at Advent, and I'm paraphrasing here, so please feel free to correct my language, but, you know, when we look at Advent, we're not looking at God's endgame, but God's beginning. This is the beginning of hope as an answer to that generational trauma. It's the beginning of a response. It's not the final curtain of the response. But if I've got that right, I wonder if you would expand on that idea for my listeners. This was one of the challenges of writing a book about Advent texts, because I was only talking about where we begin. And when Jesus is born, I mean, Matthew begins with that, this child is born, and then they are sent, you know, Jesus and his family are sent as refugees over to Egypt to escape harm. And then that harm actually comes across Bethlehem and the whole region. You know, we have the slaughter of the innocents. And when the holy family is finally allowed to come back, they can't go to their home in Bethlehem. It's still too hot and dangerous for them there. They have to go up to Nazareth, which in a sense makes them displaced peoples, right? So you get this this sense that The Advent stories actually don't end with the star and the angels singing. They end with a displaced family. Well, is is that the Advent hope that I grew up with? 
And I had to wrestle and actually not alone. My editor was, <laughs> was with me. And where is the hope in this? Well, it's a long story. And Advent is only the very beginning of that trajectory that, of course, is going to take us to resurrection. But you have to stick around for the <laughs> you have to stick around for the rest of what Luke and Matthew and the other gospel writers are going to tell us, which means yeah, this is a this story just gets us on the right trajectory, I think, seeing what's already there seeing what Jesus and his contemporaries are going to be grappling with. And I mean, I think what in the soil is you're going to see it come to fruition at the end. You're going to see it in resurrection. The seeds are all here, but we don't get the full manifestation of it in the Christmas story. This is just the very beginning of some very long seasons of learning what God's peace looks like when we try and embody it, when Jesus tried to embody it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kelly Nikondeha. She's a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. She's the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Today we're talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Early in your book, The First Advent in Palestine, you invite us to reading and rereading. And I want to talk about some of the rereadings that I found especially just beautiful and moving. And this one may seem a bit odd to some listeners, but it really just got me. You, and I'm going to paraphrase again, but you basically say that for you now, Advent begins with the first kindling of the candle of Hanukkah. And what I found delightful about that is that was an invitation to a more capacious story, a larger way of thinking about the way in which this land is shared and the stories of this land are shared. But I wonder if you could come to that kind of moment of Advent beginning with the kindling of the Hanukkah candle, because I didn't hear that as a kind of appropriation of the Jewish tradition. I heard it instead as an invitation. I want to make sure I heard that right, and I'd like for you to expand more fully for my listeners on what you meant by that phrasing, which I, th- I found delightful. I had never seen the connection between Hanukkah and Advent before. I grew up with an evangelical tradition that was very separated from my Jewish brothers and sisters. So that, again, was something that I discovered as I realized, of course, the Maccabean story is where we are introduced to the idea of Hanukkah, the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean tribe was able to recapture Jerusalem and finally get at least a a century or so of freedom after the Seleucids. But that is when we get the story of coming into the temple and reclaiming that space from an oppressive empire and reestablishing a connection to God through the relighting of this eternal flame and when I recognize that's Hanukkah is about light and liberation, it's it's a, it's it actually is a bit of a nationalistic story, and that I think adds a layer of complexity. But there is something about saying, "Wow, this Hanukkah is about light and liberation." That is again part of the predicate to these Advent stories. It's a predicate to the to the Advent candles that we often light in our wreaths. And yes, the challenge is. I don't want people to now go and celebrate Hanukkah unless you are one of our Jewish brothers and sisters or we are invited in as guests. So this is not for us to now say, this is going to be our new practice. But I think there's something in recognizing that these brothers and sisters 
they have been keeping the flame going. They do point to part of the story that we often miss. And it is an important part of the story, I think, to give greater depth to then what we go and what we practice. Not to say that they're in opposition, but that um, when we understand the way in which the Jewish texts and their history weave into our own Christian tradition, wow, I had missed this. And it makes it to me so much more beautiful to think that what my Jewish friends celebrate still can be a reminder to me and prepare me, remind me of the darkness, remind me of moments of reclamation, short-lived though they were at the time, but how we still hunger for that. And then enter into Advent, lighting different candles. But in a sense, they have lit the imagination for me for liberation and light. This was what was so powerful for me in your book, The First Advent in Palestine. You really reawakened for me the sense of, and we are so good as Christians at reading this out of the text, the sense of peril, the sense of occupation, the sense that Jesus wasn't born into a place where it was kind of like dangerous here and dangerous there. It was dangerous for him everywhere. And it was dangerous on a personal level, an economic level, a political level, like any way that you slice the story, it's there. But we're so good at reading it more like middle-class bourgeois, kind of like neighborhoods like we live in. And what really helped me with that was the constant shifting between biblical narrative and your experiences in various places with various families and various locations there in and around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and other locations. And so this for me was especially powerful, that kind of sense of presence of threat. And I'm saying that, and listeners are going to be like, wait, what? You're taking my Jesus away from me. I'm not meaning that at all, but I'm meaning instead that for me, and this gets back to the question of rereading, helped the text to become more alive for me and more real for me. And I thought it was just so deft how you accomplished that. So my hat is off to both you and your editor for helping to shape this together. But to help my listeners understand, I want to pull out another quotation from your book, The First Advent in Palestine, and you're talking about one of the main actors in this oppression, King Herod. And I'm going to paraphrase, but basically you say something like, King Herod was involved in all of these activities of surveillance, but never managed to see the star. That just floored me. I was like, that's it. He so much wanted power and control that he was unable to actually see the beauty unfolding in front of him. And then I realized, and it's still happening in the land today. Now, when I say all those things, those are my words and I'm making connections. Am I getting it right? Am I following? Or would you say it in a different way? No, I think you're getting it right. And I remember when I was in Bethlehem, we connected with a taxi driver and his name is Naif. And Naif was insistent that we go to Herodian. So Herodium is right outside of Bethlehem. It's where it's one of the places that Herod had a huge fortress. It was a man-made mountain and his palace slash fortress was at the top. And Naif was like, I have to, and I, they was not on my list of things to see at all, but he insisted. And so I was like, all right, you live here. This is your land. Show me what you want me to see. So he wanted me to see the view. Because he said, look at when you're up here, you can see all the way to the Dead Sea and you can see all the way down to up to Jericho and see if you look real, if you squint, you can see Jerusalem. And then the second time 
that I went and Naif was again our driver. Of course, take us back to Herodian. And I like, really? Again? No, no. You really have to get it. And it was that second visit that I realized, oh, this was part of the surveillance apparatus of Herod. He he was up top and he could see everything. Yes, he had informants and he had, you know, there was, yes, all the typical things we think of a police state. But in one sense, looking across from up top, I was like, wow, this was his way of making sure that he could see what was going on in the world around him. Where were the threats coming? Where were there pockets of resistance fomenting? And yet for all of that, he couldn't see in a sense, the biggest threat to his power, <laughs> which was right the other king that was going to be coming. So, yes, you're right. Now, something must have shifted in you between that first visit to Herodium and that second one. And I wonder if you can think back to your creative process. What had you read? What had you encountered? What had shifted in you that gave you eyes to see that second time that you hadn't seen before, to see things the way Herod saw them? Well, I hadn't yet started doing the deep historical research because eventually I'd come across the work of Richard Horsley, who really helped me see Herod in a way that I hadn't before. But this shift happened before I started reading his scholarship. Uh, And I really think it was sitting with Naif. The first time he wanted us to go and do more of the touristy thing, to go and see the video they want to show you and go into the gift shop and see the view. But the second time I went, I brought a girlfriend with me. And while she was up doing all that, he and I sat on a bench overlooking Bethlehem. And we had just come. He had just driven us out of Bethlehem and pointed to where there was a demolition of a house just that day on the way up. And as he and I sat and talked, I don't know, there was something about like, wow, just today on the road that we were on, there was a demolition of a home, a family put out. And from where we sat, he could see that member, you can see it from where we are. And I don't know, sometimes those moments just click and you're thinking, yeah, these are the kind of things that could be seen from up here. And that stuck with me when I started then reading the scholarship of Horsley. It all converged little by little. But this is where I think when you go and you listen to the people who live here, this is part of the fabric of their own life and the way they see and know and love their land. The spirit works in mysterious ways, right? <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kelly Nakondeha. She's a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. She's the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Today we're talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Kelly Nakandeha. She's a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. She's the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Today we're talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. 
Well, I want to start this segment by quoting you back to you, because there was one particular portion towards the end of your book, The First Advent in Palestine, that really summed it all up for me. And so I want to, I want to read it, and then I want to ask you about it. And it's where you say, this is the hope I carry as I write from the Advent narratives, that the meek ones, battered by perpetual cycles of violence, compounded by indebtedness and dispossession, will inherit the land. And those who inherit the land are the ones who live into the complexity and hope of Advent peace. Now, that quote works for me on a lot of different levels having read the book, and I recognize that my listeners don't, do not yet have the benefit of having read your book. I hope they will. But in that quotation, I hear you drawing together all of the themes that you've put in place, both from the biblical texts, but also from the geography. And I also see you gesturing towards a politics here. And I kind of want to ask this question in two parts. Help my listeners understand what are some of the pieces that are being synthesized together here. So I'm looking at the past in the first part of the question, and then I'm going to go on to ask you about the future. What's the politics that you're pointing towards here? But let's start with what you're weaving together here. Matri Raheb is a pastor in Bethlehem, and he's written several amazing books that I highly recommend doing the theological work as a Palestinian Christian right out of Bethlehem. But he was the first one who introduced the idea to me anyways, in, through his writing of who the meek are. And he talks about the meek in the biblical text as being those who are left behind. So you think, for instance, of what happened with the Babylonians when they came in and decimated Jerusalem and they took the elite, they took all the people who made society work to Babylon. And then everybody else was, you know, the riffraff, in a sense, were left, right, with the ruined, burned out city and landscape. Well, he would say those are the meek, the ones who are left. And that they will be the ones, the, the prophetic words are that they will be the ones who will inherit the land. Psalm 37 talks about the meek will inherit the land. And in that context, it was very specific to the land of Israel-Palestine. I mean, this region is what the meek were to anticipate inheriting, that those who remained would still have an inheritance. So that is my under, that really changed how I read a lot of the biblical texts when we hear about the meek. They aren't the weak ones. They're the ones who are just left behind. They're the ones underfoot of the imperial occupiers. And so that informs a lot of what my hope is, because right now I feel like this is my reading and I, I'm following his lead and the lead of Naeem Atik and others, other Palestinian theologians who would say that it is the Palestinian people who, and Pal they would say Palestinian Christians, of course, but also we have other Palestinian brothers and sisters who are the meek ones now, who are under the foot of a very aggressive imperial force, well, what they would call an imperial force. We would say that's Israel right now, that they are the ones that are the meek who are hoping that they will inherit the earth as they wait out this season of oppression. And I hope for them, not that they would have it and that our Jewish brothers and sisters would not. I'm not saying that I want one to have it and not the other, 
But this, there again, our understanding of peace has to be much more complex and nuanced to, to dream about what would it look like for these brothers and sisters who have deep roots, both in this land, to find a way to then live in it in peace into the future. And that really gestures towards now the next question that I want to ask you, the shape of this politics of hope. You've begun to talk about the fact it's much more complex than simply saying one side wins and the other side loses. And I understand the enormity of the question that I'm asking you here, but to the extent that you can give us some of the bright lines that shape this sort of theology of hope, this sort of gesture of political hope that you're moving towards here in this paragraph, to the extent that you dare, I'd invite you to to line that out for me and my listeners. Well, it's dangerous work to do that as somebody who herself is not Jewish or Palestinian or living present in the region. So I, I have to put that out there. And my friends who are peacemakers are actually some of those who are, I want to say carefully, the least articulate about peace because they carry such a deep sense of the, com- the complexity and the nuance. And they are reluctant. And I'm thinking of a particular friend of mine who's a Christian who has lived in Jerusalem her whole life. And her father is a New Testament scholar, and this is her world. And another friend who I talk about at the end of the book, Sammy Afwad, who's a Palestinian Christian uh, living in Bethlehem. And these two friends are peacemakers, and yet both very, maybe it's unkind to say inarticulate, but I mean, they're very reluctant to give a roadmap where they don't see one right now. They're very honest about the current challenge in the land that peace accords and all of those things have not brought them any closer to peace. And that right now feels like a really demoralizing time. And of course, if we look at the news just in the last couple of days, we see neighborhoods in East Jerusalem where the Palestinian community has a little bit of a foothold being evicted out of their homes. We see journalists and others being killed. And up in the northern part of the West Bank, we see an active military campaign in Gaza. I mean, this is right all popping right now. And it's hard to talk about a way forward with peace when this is really what the landscape looks like. And so this is a challenge of trying to talk about peace in the region. If you really are embedded there, you actually speak less about it because you just know how precarious it is. And I think my friend Sammy came the closest as the saying that I do the work now because I hope that it will be part of the peace to come. I can't even fully see. And I remember being so frustrated when my husband and I sat with him and he's like, yeah, there's no political peace to come. Like I can't. And we're like, what do you mean? I mean, of course, it's ha- there has to be a political solution. There has to be. So then he's like, no, but he keeps on bringing people together. He keeps on telling the story. He keeps on doing these things in the hope that he is in a sense, creating the fabric that will be helpful when a political solution comes. But but he knows it's in the distant future. He can't even see it. But he acts and behaves in a way that is still laying the groundwork for what he believes is the peace that will come, even though he can't see, even sketch it right now. So I know that's a really unsatisfying answer. It was for me and my husband, but I actually think it is one of the most honest things that you can say when you've been in the region long enough that we can't fully see it. And yet we still, in a sense, follow the seeds of hope that are planted in this Advent story. 
And we still are following the lead of these little reversals, trying to follow what God's peace campaign looks like instead of Caesar's and making choices that are less violent, making choices that are more inclusive, making choices that allow us to be hospitable with one another and be in solidarity with one another. And they seem so small, but I believe that really is we're creating the fabric for the peace to come. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kelly Nakandeha. She's a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. We're speaking today about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. What strikes me in the answer that you just gave about the politics of hope, I heard in it, and if this is a wild connection, feel free to pull me off of this. I heard in this a gesture that you make in your book, The First Advent in Palestine, towards the two Josephs. And in that, you are looking at Joseph in the gospel narratives, the betrothed of Mary, who is the namesake of Joseph from Genesis 37 through 50 and other portions of the Old Testament. And you highlight how Joseph is given the opportunity, the more the Joseph of Mary is given the opportunity to act with imperious power and dismissive might like the Joseph of the Old Testament did, but he chooses differently. And, and so what I'm hearing in your answer is, we know the old script. We have laid before us how the old Joseph is supposed to behave. We have the opportunity now to choose differently, to be the new Joseph. Now, when I make that connection, am I wildly off base or am I connecting to something that is there in the book? And if so, can you say more about it? The patriarch. Joseph. Yeah. When I talk, I, of course, I follow the lead here of the scholarship of Walter Brueggemann, who was the first to introduce me to the Joseph, who was a pious man, but a terrible economic practitioner, because as he was the food czar, he was allowing Pharaoh to get richer and richer. You know, his own people ended up enslaved. And it actually gives me great compassion for him in the sense that he was trying to deal with a very complex economic reality and trying to figure out how to navigate it. He just didn't maybe have the imagination to engage differently. Dealing with the pressures that he must have been under, didn't choose to do something different. He did exactly what Pharaoh would have expected him to do. And I see in Joseph a different imagination at work. He could have, when he put, when we talk about divorcing Mary, Part of that was legally he could have gotten back the financial gain. There there were financial things that were part of a dowry or a, a marriage contract. He would have already had some of that. And he could have legally required that back from her family. And so it's not just her disgrace, but he could have you know, reclaim some of his financial benefit. He would have been within his rights. He would have been considered a pious, good man, Jewish man for doing it and protecting himself in a sense by doing that, saying, I was wronged and I'm, things have to be made right. So in the public square, they know that I didn't engage in anything shady. I've been renewed. I've got my financial remuneration. And he, he chose differently. He imagined that Mary's worth and her character and what she was going through was actually more important than him getting the money, than him getting his name cleared in the public square. He chose different than his namesake, which gives me great hope that 
yes, it's complex. And I'm sad that the patriarch, and the patriarch was sad too, right? We hear at the end of Genesis that he was heartbroken on his deathbed and said, move my bones out when you guys finally get free because even I don't want to stay here. Like he knew that he had not calculated right and behaved as into the best that was possible. But I see in Mary's Joseph, this, it's just the spark that things could be different, that we could calculate our economic benefit different when we calculate the worth of other people around us. And I think he, he shows us that. Well, what strikes me here, I'm thinking of a conversation I had recently here on the show with Shannon T.L. Kearns, rereading the Joseph narrative as one of intense trauma. The Joseph the patriarch had been abused, and that abuse became institutionalized towards the Israelite people into their servitude eventually as we move into Exodus. And what I'm hearing you saying is, just as you do with Mary's Magnificat as well in your book, The First Advent in Palestine, in both cases, Joseph and Mary are choosing not to lean into the trauma and to prepare perpetuate the oppression, but rather to to center, if you will, the voice of the vulnerable. So in Mary's case, she centers those that are the meek, as you've been talking about. Joseph centers Mary. And in both cases, the centering of the vulnerable undoes the oppression and moves towards hope. Now, these are my words, not yours. Would you say it in a different way, or am I on No, I love here? that. I love the way you said it, because I think you're right. When you are centering the vulnerable, it changes how you think in terms of economics and how you think of you know, even your political calculus. I mean, I know personally, my when I started to see where I was in the socioeconomic stratus of my own country and started to realize the difference that my some of my brothers and sisters in this country and my fellow citizens experienced, man, it changed my political calculus when I had to start voting with my neighbor in mind and not just myself and my pocketbook, right? So I think there is that sense that when you are centering, as you said, the vulnerable, wow, we are opening ourselves up to maybe moving closer to God's kind of peace that we see before us in the Advent narratives. Now, when you make these kinds of moves, I am sure that some readers are, like I am, on board with you. And maybe some readers are skeptical or they push back. For those that look at this and say, listen, I've got my bishop, I've got my pastor, I know what these stories say. Why should I read your book? It sounds like you, Kelly Nakandeha, have not understood these stories. It's very clear in the Bible kind of what forces are acting here, and you're introducing all this political stuff. How would you respond to that skeptical listener right now as a way to invite them into this book for perhaps their own benefit? Well, I grew up in the Catholic Church in my early years, and then my family migrated into evangelical spaces. And in my Young adulthood, I was in charismatic spaces. So I've heard these Advent stories from, you know, several different denominational viewpoints. So I know the stories and I have loved these stories. Advent was the season in the church calendar that was most dear to me. I mean, so I cherish these stories. But as I said, when I started to feel out of sync and I turned to the text itself to reorient me, coming at it now I'm over 50. So I, maybe some of it is coming at it 50 plus. You, you've lived some, you've seen some, you've experienced some. We, we do development work in Burundi, which is a small East African country that's always on the bottom five of the UN's list of underdeveloped countries. We have seen extreme poverty up close. I have friends in Israel, Palestine, and have seen 
the poverty that they struggle with and the economic strangulation that, that they deal with in the West Bank, you see differently. And so I came back into these texts and just saw them in a way that I had never seen them growing up. And so I think there is something to come in and uh, be willing to see them anew and to allow ourselves to be surprised. I think one of the joys of scripture for me is always that when I come to a text that I deeply love, that I deeply know, and I submit to those good things that I learned as an evangelical, which is to meditate on the scripture and the things that I've learned as a charismatic, which was to trust that the spirit is at work still today, speaking and guiding that when I lean into those, I'm often surprised that I end up in terrain that I was, it's new to me. Like what, there's trauma in this text? The economics of this text? The, I didn't see it, but I feel like this has been a space I've been invited into because of my tradition and that the spirit brings those things together, allowing us to see things, to bring our own experience and the stories of those that we know and love. And you just see it afresh. So I would invite people to suspend your suspicion a little bit, be willing to see it differently, to feel the challenge of that, to wrestle with it a bit, and then to see what comes on the other side. I, I don't expect that people will agree with everything in how I see and read these texts, but I love that we can be in conversation together and say, wow, what if that reading were true? What might that mean? What might that say about God that I just hadn't seen before or considered before? What might that say about Mary that I hadn't thought before or Joseph that I just never, you know, I think it allows us to just see the scripture from another vantage point and have more conversations together and be surprised by the spirit. Well, Kelly Nakandeha, your book, The First Advent in Palestine, invited me to look at these texts in new ways. And as I said, I've been teaching these texts for two decades now, and you showed me new things. I am so grateful for the time that you took to travel to these areas, to think and reflect on these texts, and to read and reread them. But also thank you especially for the time that you took today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Well, it was a pleasure. I, you know, it's exciting when you finally can share what you've been deeply immersed in for a couple of years in terms of the writing. And so it's really exciting to be in conversation with you and to invite your listeners into those conversations with us this Advent. Kelly Nakandeha is a writer, liberation theologian, and community development practitioner. She combines biblical texts and various cultural contexts to discover insights for embodied justice, community engagement, and living faith. She's the author of Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom, and Adopted, The Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. Today we've been talking about her recent book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. 
Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>